we are going to continue our series in Acts. We're in 20, chapters 20 and 21. If you have a Bible or your phone, I need you to open to Acts chapter 20. I'm going to summarize this chap, these into, oops, well, we've got to go jump back ahead to one big thing. One big idea, one theme, a thread that weaves its way through Acts chapters 20 and 21. So I'm going to give you the, first I'm going to give you the theme of the book. Then I'm going to recount and I'm going to tell the story because it's a lot of text. I'm just going to retell it and narrate it to you in my own words. Then we're going to hone on on two specific events that happen that really reinforce this one big thing. And then I'm going to put a pin in each one, and we'll come back. And finally, we're going to take this one big thing, and we're going to put a spotlight on why it matters to you. Okay, here's the one big thing. Focus on obedience to Jesus, not your expected outcome. Focus on obedience to Jesus, not your expected outcome. I'm going to boil that down even further into two words. Obedience is greater than outcome. I want to define each word so we are on the same page of what they mean. Obedience is submission to authority. It is relinquishment of control. That has a negative connotation in our culture. In the Western world, we value the self. We prioritize me, what I want, how I identify myself, my needs, my priorities, my dreams, my future. Obedience is the exact opposite of that. You are giving yourself up under the authority of someone or something else. You are letting go control of your life. Let's define outcome. It's the result or effect of an action, situation, or event. It's the result of a cause. If I do this, then this will happen. If I believe this, then this will happen. If I pray for this, I expect I will receive it. Okay, for example, outcome. Let's say that I run. I'll use Joel as an example. If I run and I dive off the stage and I jump into Joel's arms, what is the expected outcome? Well, I believe that she will catch me, swing me around in her arms, and place me gently on the floor, and thus be a hero to me and all of you. And I want that to happen. In fact, I could believe it. And if it doesn't happen, I would be very disappointed. But we know, and we're realistic, that if I did that, we would both end up at urgent care. Focus on obedience to Jesus, not your expected outcome. Obedience is greater than outcome. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to recap chapters 20 and 21. At the end of chapter 19, which JR did a great job last week covering all of chapter 19, Paul is now in the city of Ephesus. Let's see, I think this is a... Yeah, 
He's, it's right here. He's in the city of Ephesus. He is in the middle of his, the third missionary journey. The point of this journey is he's going around and he is planting churches. He's spreading the good news of the Lord Jesus, and he's revisiting and encouraging churches. So he's in Ephesus. He decides that he needs to get back to Jerusalem right here because he wants to get back in time for Pentecost, and he wants to give himself plenty of time to get there. He feels that the Holy Spirit is calling him to do that. But he finds out that there are some dudes, they're Jews, they want to kill him. And if you go back and read chapter 19, you will find out why they want to kill him. And J.R. recapped that last week. So instead, he takes three months, and he goes up through Macedonia, and he goes all the way down into Greece, and he's revisiting churches that he's already be- he has already planted, and he's encouraging him. And he comes back to Troas. In chapter 20, in the city of Troas, he spends a week, and he is preaching into the night. And there's this young man whose name is Eutychus. And he's sitting at a window listening to him, and he sinks into a deep sleep, and he falls out of a third-story window because he's so tired. I can't imagine being so tired that I fall out of a third-story window, but this is what happens. And he dies. Paul goes down, and he picks him up, and he says, Nah, bro, it's cool. There's life in him. And he lives. And the people are like, What? They're amazed. Paul's ready to go back to Jerusalem. He is, he's got to get back. It's been three months now, three months, over three months. And so he goes down and he's like, I'm not going to stop in Ephesus because I know I'm going to get hung up there. If, if you read chapter 19, you'll know why. So instead, he bypasses Ephesus and he goes to Miletus. But he really wants to talk to the elders of the church at Ephesus. So he calls them down there. And they hightail it down to Miletus, and he meets them, and he gives this incredible speech, this incredible address, this charge to the elders in Ephesus. And this is the first pin. This is where we're going to revisit. They pray together, they cry together, knowing that they're never going to see him again. Paul leaves. And after several stops, he lands down here in Tyre. And in Tyre, he stops at the house of Philip the Evangelist and his four prophetic daughters. At at their house, he meets this guy named Philip the Evangelist. Sorry, he meets a guy named Agabus, who's a prophet. And Agabus prophesies, takes Paul's belt, ties his own hands and his feet together, and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt to deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when the people heard this, they begged Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul assured them that he was there, he was called by the Holy Spirit, and he was willing to die before disobeying that call. And the people said, let the will of the Lord be done. This is the second pin. So Paul then leaves to Caesarea, and he lands on in Jerusalem. And there he meets James and the other elders of the first church, and he tells them all what has happened on his missionary journey and how the Gentiles have come to believe. Not just the Jews, but Gentiles have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and they are amazed and they praise God that the spirit of the Lord Jesus would come upon the Gentiles and the Greeks as well as the Jews. They rejoice, but they also decide that they're not going to place the law of Judaism upon the shoulders of the Gentiles. 
So what they do is they say, we're going to ask them to do three things. First, they cannot eat food sacrificed to idols. They need to abstain from consuming blood. And they need to not have sex outside of marriage. So, at that point, they warn him, the Jews here are livid. They're coming for you. Are you sure you want to do this? If so, you better prepare for it. So Paul purifies himself for seven days, and he goes to the temple. Jews from Asia, predictably, see him. They're furious. They freak out. They stir up the crowd. They start beating Paul so much that the Roman soldiers have to step in. They arrest him. They bring him before the Roman tribunal. And Paul says, can I address everyone? End of chapter 21. So that's 20 and 21 recapped. Now what I want to do is I want to look at the one big idea Obedience over outcome in light of those two pins that I just mentioned. Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders, and they know they're never going to see him again as they believe that he's going to his death. So the question here is, if you knew that you were never going to see someone again, you knew you would never see them again, what would you say to them? What would you say? What kind of legacy would you want to leave for them? What would you want them to remember you for? This is that speech. Acts chapter 20, 18 through 35. I really want to encourage you to read that. We don't have time to read it this morning, but I want to encourage you, if you have not read this passage, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I'm going to recap it for you and put up bullet points here so that you can see what Paul is highlighting. This is what he says to the Ephesian elders who have come down from to Miletus. When I first came to you, my primary objective was to share this message. Repent from your sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus. I do not care about saving my own life, but I will finish it in obedience to the calling that God gave me. The Holy Spirit is sending me to Jerusalem And I know that imprisonment and torture is waiting for me. I didn't shrink back from speaking the whole counsel of God to you. I taught you everything for three years, and I did not hold back. I served you in all humility. I did not take advantage of you, nor did I get financial gain from any of my time with you. I modeled how to live out a life in Jesus. Now you go do it. And as I leave you, I leave you this charge. Be alert. Defend the church. Work hard. Help the weak. And be lavishly generous. Paul was primarily concerned about obeying the call of Jesus in his life. If you read through the entire passage, you'll notice he rejected prestige, headcount, financial gain, his own safety, his own comfort, And he was not adverse to suffering and persecution. And he was never concerned about any outcome except for one. And that was finishing well. Obedience over outcome. And at the very end, 
Paul emphasized the obedience, his obedience to the will of God, and he encouraged the elders to do the same, to stay faithful in their life journeys. Be alert, defend the church, help the weak, be generous. Now, the reason that I love this passage so much is because I am an elder in a church. It is this church. And I take this command from an apostle to an, el- to an eldership team very seriously. And I ask myself, are we doing these things? Are we defending the church? Are we working hard? Are we helping the weak and being generous? We're not perfect, but we're trying. I'm going to give you two examples from this week, just this week. Many of you are not privy to the conversations that the elders have and what we're trying to do and meet everybody's needs. But we got a call for help from Paul Simpson. Do you know who Paul Simpson is? Okay, he lives in South Africa. We support Paul. He is an evangelist. He's a church planner, and he helps pastors all over South Africa and Tanzania. His truck broke down, and he can't drive anywhere, and he didn't have the money for it, And so he called for a plea for help to say, can you help me? And so we decided, because of your generosity, because of your generosity, to give him $11,000 so he could buy a new truck. Okay? That is not us. We are only generous because you are generous. Okay? So now he's able to continue the work of the ministry. He is out in the field doing the work. Second example, Jonas, where are you? He's back there, Jonas Canny. So Jonas went down a couple weeks ago to the Northern Cheyenne uh, Indian Reservation and found out that there is a pastor down there who is living in basically a work trailer. It's, there, it's a poverty situation, really, really tough. And this pastor needs a new roof. And so Jonas came back and was trying to figure out how to do it. And the eldership team came together and decided, we're going to give, we're going to give Jonas a couple thousand dollars so he can go down and fix this roof for this pastor at the Indian Reservation. Okay? Again, that is not us. We're only stewards of your generosity. Okay? I just want to thank you for being generous And we're living out the call of generosity. And there are so many people here in this congregation that are so, so very generous. I could name names, but for this example, thank you, Jonas and Amy. Thank you for your your, um, faithfulness in doing this. If we're going to continue to be generous, we need you to continue to be generous. So well done. That's pin number one. What would you say? What would you say to someone as you were leaving? Be generous. Work hard. Live in obedience. Obedience is greater than outcome. Here's pin number two. We're going to go to Acts chapter 21, verse 11 through 14. We're going to read that together. And coming to us, He, meaning Agabus, the prophet, took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. And he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we, the church, the people there, heard this, we and the people there urged him, do not go to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. The people heard the voice of the Spirit correctly, and they saw what was going to happen, and they did not like the outcome that was to come. They were rightly concerned for Paul's safety, and if we don't step in, he's going to be in prison and even die. But Paul was more concerned with following the will of God, not the potential outcome. Now, why does this matter to us today? I have always been focused on outcomes. So on Thursday, we had the men's kickoff event, the NFL kickoff event. And at halftime, we do this event where we kick, do a kicking distance thing. How far can you kick it? I got second last year, and I lost to Colton Shirley. This year, Colton wasn't there. Guess who thought he was going to win? Guess who didn't win? Ben Rivers, you jerk. I was disappointed. I thought I was going to win. I thought I knew what the outcome was going to be. It didn't happen. As a matter of fact, I work for an organization whose primarily marketing tool is focused on expected outcomes. Come to this college, and you will most likely get this sweet job or have an amazing internship. You'll have an incredible experience. Except, what happens when you don't? If I teach my kids all the right things, and I take them to church every Sunday, I pray with them, I intentionally teach them the Bible, I protect them from harm, I do all the things. I mean, I read, read lots of books about raising kids God's way. And if I raise them, and they'll turn out to be on-fire Christians, except, what if they don't? What if they make choices for themselves that completely reject everything that you taught them? And what if I'm walking in humility, and I'm in God's will, and I really feel called to be married. But I can't find anyone who's called to be married to me. And then I did find who I thought was Mr. Right, and now I'm trapped in a verbally abusive marriage with no way out because, well, what do people think of me if I get divorced? I mean, I grew up in the church, and you just don't get divorced if you want to obey Jesus. He was only five years old. He was too young to get cancer. And he leaves behind a broken family with parents asking, God, how could you let this happen? God, where are you? God, I can't even breathe anymore. Will my children come back to the Lord? Will I ever find a partner? Will he save me from this cancer? Should I take this job? Should I move out of town? God, if you really loved me, why would I experience abuse? I don't deserve that. How can a loving God allow her to die? Will these sexual feelings, which I know are wrong, will they ever go away? 
Why am I plagued by them? I was unjustly fired from my job. I thought God wanted the best for me. He's a wicked man. How can God let him get away with that? And I'm the one who suffers the consequences. God, you could just take this chronic pain away from me. And you don't. How can I follow a God like that? God, what is your will? What is, what, what is your will in my life? I want answers. If there's suffering, if there's tears, if there's pain, if we're uncomfortable, God must be absent. Or he doesn't care. And if that outcome we want it to be true, you are cancer-free. Your child is going to live. If that outcome we believed doesn't, we believed it to be true, and we want it to be true, we feel that it should happen because we did all the right things, and it doesn't come true, we set ourselves up for disillusionment, disappointment, and even the deconstruction of our faith. Tyler, where are you? Tyler, are you in here? Okay, Tyler's back there. Tyler, it's time for Montana talk. Tyler told me Montana talk is real talk. That's what people outside of Montana believe that um, Montana talk is we actually speak our mind. We tell the truth. Behind the scenes, I pour my heart and my soul into all of these messages. I practice I rewrite, I rewrite. Nick, Nick, he's the one that knows because he's like gets five versions of my PowerPoint. Now I change that, no, do this, change that, whatever. And my expectation, my hope, are, are these people going to get it? Are people going to change their lives? Is it going to happen? Am I going to get the right outcome that I want? And what if they don't? What if they don't get it? What if they just walk away and shrug their shoulders? I don't know how you're going to respond to this. But here's the thing. That's not up to me. My job is to be faithful, to speak the truth, and to speak it in love. That's what God has called me to do. And I could give the most amazing message, but your response is not up to me whatsoever. Let's go back to chapter 8 in Acts. There's a man, his name's Stephen. He gave the most amazing speech that you could ever imagine. And what happened at the end of this amazing speech? They stoned him. Please, please don't stone me. Please. I would much rather have you just shrug your shoulders and, and go, <clears throat> go watch whatever NFL game and go to lunch, okay? The problem that we have as believers is that we've attached ourselves to, an, to expected outcomes in our faith that God has never promised. And part of that faith journey that we have to learn as we're walking along and we're looking out into the future is that God is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed. You may not feel it now. You may not see it right now, but the cross of Jesus is evident that he knows what it means to suffer and he knows what it means to be brokenhearted. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you 
unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We should have faith. We must have faith. But faith is never about believing in my outcome. It's never about that. Faith is about relinquishing outcomes and holding on to the person of Jesus. Jesus says, you abide in me. You listen to and obey my voice. You focus on obeying and dwelling. And I will provide the outcome. I will provide the fruit. If Jesus is who he says he is, he's the very life in us, that nothing will ever separate us from him, that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, our faith and obedience to him will provide exactly what we need. What do we need? Wholeness and connectedness and restoration to relationship with our creator God. And his outcome brings forever salvation and communion with him. And so is it possible that if God never heals my sciatica, if I lose my house in a fire, if I lose a child in miscarriage, that there might be a bigger purpose than I can see? Could Jesus still be trustworthy through all the pain? He said, abide in me and carry out your thoughts and actions and behaviors in response to what I've already done for you. I have defeated death. I have saved you. I've restored you to the Father. You just need to believe it and live it out. I will provide the outcomes and you will bear the fruit that I provide. And so why does Acts 20 and 21 matter to me? Because the life of Paul teaches us to relinquish control and live our lives in simple obedience to Jesus. This was one of the most godly men to ever walk the face of the earth, this Paul. And he experienced torture, imprisonment, uncertainty, and much worse. But he let go of his expected outcomes, and he let go of his expectations, and he walked obediently in the day-to-day journey with his king and savior. So should we. I know of a couple who did it the right way. They saved sexual intimacy for marriage. They got great jobs and they saved for years so they could stay at home when they were ready to have kids. They both worked for ministries. They dedicated and devoted their personal lives and their professional lives to the Lord. And they were ready when they got pregnant, ready for a beautiful life of parenthood and marriage till their son came and was born at 24 weeks, and he wasn't well. And during that time, his father came and proclaimed scripture over him, and they prayed that God would save him. They worshiped, and they pleaded with God. And on the third day, he died in his mother's arms. And they said to God, you have abandoned us. You have disappointed us. You let us down. How could you possibly have let that happen to us? How could you do that to people who are doing it the right way? What kind of God would do that? 
And it totally threw them into a spiritual spiral, and they didn't know what to say, and they couldn't hear from him. And they said, God, where are you? What is the purpose of this? We thought we knew what was going to happen, and you pulled the rug out from under us. We thought we were going to get the outcome we wanted. And then they realized, when they verbalized that, I'll say it again, we thought we were going to get the outcome that we wanted. Now, their lives could have gone in two different directions. One, which I have seen again and again, they, completely, they could have completely abandoned God. Walk away. I'm done. But they chose the other direction, and that was to press back into God after a season of lament. And you know what they said made the difference? They said, because they had prioritized a foundation of obedience to the Lord Jesus prior to the tragedy, they had learned to trust and abide in him as the source and foundation of their lives. They were able to realize that they had made a God an idol out of a certain outcome, to have the perfect family over making Jesus the ultimate Lord. This is where I look at the lyrics of these songs that we sang today. Christ, my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand, when everything around me is shaking, I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus because he's never let me down. He's faithful through generations, so why would he fail now? Those are the words that you sang today. In the waiting, the same God who's never late is working all things out. You're working all things out. Yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy all my days. Yes, I will. You have to solidify your faith now, before the hardship, before the disappointment, knowing that God is ultimately control of any outcome. Attach yourself to the vine, and he will supply everything you need. Let him be the foundation of your life, and you'll be able to weather the storm when it rocks your world. Paul knew exactly what role he had in Jesus' greater story. That's the story of Acts 20 and 21. He was called to obedience. He was not worried about the outcome of all his church planning travels or even his life. And he verbalized it when he said this in the first, his first letter to the Corinthians. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It is God who provides the outcome. Focus on obedience to Jesus, not your expected outcome. Obedience is greater than outcome. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for all the stories and imperatives from your book of Acts. And I pray that we would walk forward in life, a life of obedience, walking in your will and not our own. Thank you for my fellow brothers and sisters in this church. And we commit to laying ourselves down for the benefit of others, just as you laid your life down for us. We say, come, Lord Jesus. 
We're waiting for your return. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. All God's people said, amen.